Timothy Keller writes, the Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. You know, of all the things that people struggle with internally, all the things people wrestle with inside of themselves, you'll often find at the root of a significant portion of those struggles, there lies an identity crisis. A lot of people uh, who struggle with things like depression, self-hatred, narcissism, a host of other internal battles either often do not understand or have not been willing to accept the person that God created them to be. They have a distorted view of themselves. They believe things about themselves that are not true while refusing to believe what is true about themselves, which can and often does, of course, have a profound effect on how they live their lives, what they end up achieving or not achieving in life, and how they interact with other people and so on, because when you spend your time and energy and focus constantly feeding a false identity, it becomes impossible to live the life of purpose you were created to live. You cannot become all that God created you to be until you accept the person he created you to be. You, you have to own who you are in Christ, and yet this world is full of people who believe in the truth about Jesus while believing in a lie about themselves. Maybe it's because of their past mistakes or hurt they've experienced or failures they've had, or maybe it's something that someone else said about them, and so they actually assume a false identity. They consequently miss out on the life that God has planned for them, which is nothing new, by the way. In the first century Mediterranean world, the Jewish people generally regarded the Gentile people as unclean. And because of the Jewish purity laws, they really had very little to do with the Gentiles when it came to their religious beliefs and practices. And at the same time, they understood themselves to be God's chosen people. The kingdom of priests and a holy nation as described in Exodus 19.6 by God himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in reference to the Israelites. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles might claim to be many things, but when it came to being God's people, when it came to being a priesthood, holy and set apart, when it came to being the chosen people of God, the Israelites had it on good authority that that status was reserved for the Jews alone, not, not the Gentiles. And most everyone understood that, at least until a little more than halfway through the first century when the Apostle Peter, a Jew, writes a letter to predominantly Gentile Christians in the northern parts of Asia Minor, quoting Exodus 19, not as a description of Jewish people, but as a description of all followers of Christ, including those who were Gentiles. Peter says to these Gentile believers, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. In that one statement, Peter redefines the very identity of a lot of people. And I'm just telling you, we don't really have a cultural context in our society today to compare this to, to fully appreciate the gravity of what Peter was saying and the repercussions of what it meant to all people who would follow Christ, including those who were non-Jewish, that they had now become the chosen people of God. Of course, it wasn't because of anything they had done. They had no reason to boast about their new identity in Christ because it was all his doing, not theirs. And even though we may not be able to 
put ourselves in their shoes culturally, we can certainly identify with those first century Gentile Christians spiritually because for all of us who follow Christ today, we've experienced the very same transformation from being not a people to now being God's people, from being unclean to being made clean, from being unacceptable to being accepted. And like those early Gentiles, we cannot claim this new identity, this new status by any merit of our own, because like them, we've been chosen by God alone, as we've been redeemed by the work of Christ alone. Now, probably most Christians today would say they understand all of that. We know that we belong to God because we've been chosen by God, which means we can now claim the status God's people, which is true, and that's, that's actually wonderful, but is that it? Is that all there is to it? Right? I'm now a child of God. I'm a member of his family. I'm one of the chosen ones, which means I'll go to heaven and live forever. It's going to be awesome. I can eat whatever I want every day and never gain any weight. Uh, this is going to be great. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. The whole package. I'm saved. I walked the aisle. I said the prayer. I joined the church. I'm a Christian. That is my new status, which actually is profoundly important that we understand all of that, but does that mean I can now go on about my business, living my life largely for myself as a good moral Christian person? I vote for the right people, I listen to the right music, I say the right things, I hang out with other Christians, because that's what you do when you have the status, the Christian status. Right? Because listen, a lot of people are, are culturally Christian. They do all of the things that we associate with people who claim the status of Christian, and actually there's nothing wrong with most of those things in and of themselves. We're supposed to be set apart by God and for God. So you understand we're not knocking lifestyles that honor God. On the contrary, we commend that. What I'm asking you is, is that all that there is to our new identity? Is that all that we were chosen for? To be good, moral people, to be culturally Christian, to say the right things, to go to the right places, to hang out with the right people, and then one day go to heaven. Is it all that we were chosen for? I don't think so. We have been chosen, but chosen for what? Because our identity in Christ is far more than just a new status. When Peter told the Gentile believers about being chosen, he also told them what they were chosen for. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It sounds like we were actually chosen for a purpose, which is deeply important because it's one thing to say I belong to God, that I've been chosen by him, that I've been redeemed by him, and that may be true and very important, but for what purpose? Have you ever stopped to ask God, why did you choose me? What have I been chosen for? Because look, I'm telling you, you've not been chosen simply for some kind of status. No, you've been chosen for a purpose, and if that's true, then you have a big decision to make. Will the rest of my natural life revolve around a status or a purpose? Because those are two very different things. Living for status and nothing more will cause you to live your life doing things for yourself and consequently often feeling like a failure. Living for a purpose will cause you to give your life away doing things for others, which I can tell you is tremendously fulfilling. That's the difference between status and purpose. We live in a culture chock full of people who are living for status of one variety or the other. And again, as Christians, our status as children of God couldn't be any more important than it is, but you haven't been chosen just to be chosen. 
You haven't been chosen simply to be able to call yourself a Christian. No, you've been chosen for a purpose, something far bigger than yourself. Your life has a purpose beyond serving yourself. And once you find out what that purpose is and you embrace it, well, you'll never be the same again. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples when he said, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. John 15, 16. In other words, I've chosen you for a purpose to spend the rest of your life doing things that abide, things that far outlive you, things that remain long after you have left this earth. That's called living a life of purpose, which I'll just tell you is far riskier. It is a far riskier way to live your life than simply saying, I'm saved, I made it, I'm good. There's nothing really left for me to do other than to be morally and politically and socially conservative. And yet that's been the standard for much of the church in the West for a long time now. But listen, if you want to discover your purpose, you have to be willing to live for more than just a status. You have to be willing to actually follow Christ no matter where that takes you, no matter what that looks like, and no matter the risk. Because you weren't chosen for a status, you were chosen for a purpose, which is the only kind of life you should ever want to live as one of God's people. And if you're wondering what that looks like, we're going to find out in our story today as we work our way through the second chapter of the book of Joshua, continuing our sermon series, working through that book. It's a story about a woman named Rahab. Perhaps the most unlikely heroine in the fabled history of God's people. A woman who, despite her sordid past, discovers her true purpose in life and goes after it with such conviction that she ends up risking her own life and family for it. Yet, as we'll see, that was the very life she was chosen for, which becomes increasingly obvious as the story unfolds. And yet, it's more than just her story because it speaks volumes about just exactly what it means to truly be chosen by God still today, regardless of what lies you may be believing about yourself. So let's turn there together to Joshua 2. Joshua chapter 2, we'll begin by reading the first two verses. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So at this point in the story of God's people, the Israelites, you'll remember from last week, have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses has died, and so God commissions Joshua, Moses' apprentice, as the new leader of the people of Israel. And he tells Joshua to prepare the people to cross the River Jordan to finally take possession of the land that had been promised to them. And yet he was also clear with Joshua numerous times in the first chapter of the book that they were going to have to be strong and courageous on their conquest because taking possession of that land would mean they were going to have to fight for what was promised to them. In other words, yes, this is yours. I'm giving it to you. But it's not going to be easy or effortless just because you're my chosen people. And so Joshua, in preparation for taking the promised land, sends two spies to gather intelligence about the land they are to take possession of, and especially the city of Jericho, because it was the most heavily fortified city in the promised land, and it would be their first point of attack. And so when the spies get to Jericho... They enter the house of a prostitute named Rahab, not to commit immorality, 
but to commit espionage. Because you see, in antiquity, a prostitute's house was frequented mostly by soldiers, which meant if you were seeking information about the military in a particular city, the best source of that information, second only to the military headquarters themselves, would be the local brothel. Okay, but why Rahab? Why Rahab's house? Why this particular place? Surely there were many other prostitutes in the city, right? Well, there's a 20-volume historical work called Antiquities of the Jews, written by a first-century Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, who tells us in that writing that Rahab was also an innkeeper. In other words, her house was more than just a brothel. It was also used as a roadside inn. And so for the spies whose mission was to enter the city undetected, remember, verse 1 says, Joshua sent two men secretly as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. This was supposed to be a covert mission, which then makes perfect sense that they would go to a roadside inn that happened to be owned and operated by a prostitute because there they could find lodging and also potentially useful information about the military there. So a seemingly brilliant move on the spies' part, except for the fact that the very first part of their mission, right from the get-go, was singularly unsuccessful. In fact, it was a complete and utter failure. These were spies on a secret mission to covertly enter the city unnoticed. Yet no sooner had they arrived at Rahab's house that Joshua tells us it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Well done, fellas. Good job. Right? They totally blew it. They totally botched the mission up to this point, and it wasn't looking good for them as the king and his men were on to them and also on their way to them. Let's see what happens next, verses 3 through 7. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them uh, with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Okay, so the king sends his men to Rahab's house straight away to capture the spies. And Rahab is faced with a choice. She can turn the spies in, and this woman, who was at the very bottom of the barrel in stature in her community, a prostitute running her business out of her own house, she would instantly gain status among her own people and her king as a hero if she turns these men over to the authorities. But that's not what she does. Because Rahab is discovering her purpose in this world. As we'll see, she senses in that moment when a profound decision must be made, she senses something greater than status standing before her. She is beginning to realize her purpose in this life. And so she decides in that moment to pursue her purpose wherever that may lead her. God had chosen Rahab not just to come to faith, although, as we'll see, that is certainly a part of it, But he chose her for a purpose that was bigger than just herself. Okay, on their own, 
The spies failed to remain undetected, but God chose Rahab to provide protection for his people. So she hid the spies. And the fact that she had stalks of flax stacked on her roof and scarlet cord, which we'll read about in a moment, is pretty clear indication that she also manufactured dyed linen. Linen is actually an organic material made from the, the dried fibers of flax plants. And so the more we learn about this woman the more remarkable of a, a person she appears to be. She's obviously highly intelligent. She's capable. She's a quick-thinking woman. She runs multiple businesses, although not all honorable, out of her house. And when the king's men come to collect the spies, she hides them in the flax that was stacked up for drying on the roof before it could be used for making linen. And then she makes up an impressive lie on the spot, in the moment, to convince the king's soldiers that the spies had left. By the way, uh, there are people who have trouble uh, theologically, they have a hard time with the fact that Rahab lied to protect these spies. How could she be truly serving God in that moment by lying? Well, first of all, first of all she'd done far worse things in her lifetime than lying. Secondly, her lie to protect the innocent was not all that different from the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 who refused to kill the male Hebrew babies as ordered by Pharaoh, and then they lied to Pharaoh about it, and yet the passage says that because of what they did, God dealt well with the midwives, Exodus 1.20. It's really no different than the scores of men and women who hid the Jews in their homes in Nazi Germany in order to save them from extinction, and yet they lied to the German soldiers about the fact that they were harboring God's people in their houses, and they were heroes for it. Okay, the fact that Rahab lies to protect God's men should be no reason for us to believe that she was doing anything other than fulfilling her God-given purpose in that moment because God chose her to provide protection for his people. The truth is, it's hard not to admire her. She's risking her own life by doing what she did. And again, she didn't have to. She could have turned them in and been considered a hero among her people, but Rahab chose purpose over status which is the very same thing that God is calling us to do today, even at times at great risk to ourselves. Okay, as his church, the body of Christ, we're supposed to look after one another, and there's no avoiding the fact that doing so will involve our time, it will involve our energy, it will involve our talents and our money, all to the exclusion at times of using all of those things to serve ourselves, which can be risky. Because you can expend your time and energy and talents and money serving others and never receive back from them what you've given. You hear me? You can, you can give and give and give your time and energy and talents and money and never receive that back from the people you're serving, okay? You need to know there's always risk involved with loving other people. Always, no exceptions. If you're gonna truly love other people, you will always be doing so at great risk to yourself. And I'll just tell you something. You can write this down and put it on your refrigerator if it helps you. You can have great risk without great reward. But you cannot have great reward without great risk. You can, you can risk a lot in this life and not be rewarded for it, not receive what you were, what you were after. But anything great, any great reward you ever receive in this life always comes with great risk. That's a fact, Jack. No exceptions. You can have great risk without great reward. You cannot have great reward without great risk. Anything in life worth pursuing 
is going to cost you a risk involved. Okay, Living a life of purpose is risky. It always has been. It always will be. And you won't always see an immediate return on your investment. But in the end, when you live the way that God created you to live, when you live for God's purposes in your life, you will be rewarded far beyond what you've invested. Not to mention that all along the way, you'll know what it is to live a life of purpose, which can be incredibly fulfilling in and of itself, which is also not something everyone can claim. Not by a long shot. I mean, how many people do we hear about? Rich, famous, wildly successful people who had everything they could ever want materially, who decide they're in their own lives. Why? Because there's no fulfillment in using everything God has given you to serve yourself. That never makes people truly happy or content. Never. No, the fulfillment that people are looking for, the fulfillment we all want deep inside of us, only comes through Christ by knowing Him and by following Him. It's called living with purpose, which will involve great risk at times in our own lives, but that's what living with purpose looks like, which was something Rahab was learning as she risked her own life to protect these men of God. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a pagan Amorite, enemy, prostitute. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So the men were sent to secretly spy out the land. Not only did they immediately blow their cover, but their mission was to survey and make an assessment of the land. The second part of their mission was an abject failure as well. They hadn't gone anywhere. They hadn't surveyed anything, right? Their secret assignment. They snuck in to survey the land. They've been identified by the enemy. And now instead of surveying anything, let alone Jericho, that city, all they can do is hide under a pile of plants on Rahab's roof just to avoid being caught and killed. So their cover's blown and now they're hiding for their lives. But then something amazing happens, completely unprompted by the spies. Rahab goes up to the roof just before they go to bed and reveals to them the disposition of the people and military of Jericho toward the Israelites, which was an incredibly valuable piece of information to have for someone who's planning an imminent attack on the city. Okay, on their own, the spies failed to obtain any useful information about Jericho, but God chose Rahab to provide revelation for his people. Again, Rahab didn't have to tell these men anything. Furthermore, they were not in a position to demand anything from her. At this point, they're just trying to stay alive by her good graces. 
But Rahab, for the first time in her life, is living for a purpose greater than herself, and she's using her time and energy and talent and intellect to serve that purpose instead of serving herself. Now, she does do one thing that is self-serving for her and her family to try and save their own lives, which is not only understandable, but perfectly acceptable, right? We're supposed to take care of ourselves and our families as we serve each other, besides which God had chosen her for an even greater purpose, which we'll see as we continue. So there's no wrong motive here in Rahab asking to have their own lives spared when the attack from Israel happens. But the, the point is, what she's already doing by hiding them on her roof, risking her own life by lying to the authorities about it, and now giving them a place to stay for the night, was certainly enough all by itself for her to ask for considerations when the city is attacked. She doesn't have to do anything else at this point. She certainly didn't have to offer this new revelation about her people and the fact that they were shaking in their sandals over the battle that was looming. At this point in history, the Amorites, these are the people inhabiting Canaan, they were at the height of their power. So hearing firsthand from an Amorite living in the most fortified city in Canaan that the Amorite people were terrified of the Israelites was extremely significant information to have. And so unprompted, even though she didn't have to, by her own volition, she tells them all about it because Rahab hadn't simply decided to commit a purposeful deed. She made a decision to start living a purposeful life. It's the difference between people who try to do a good deed from time to time to ease their own conscience about the fact that they spend the rest of their time living for themselves. It's the difference between that and people who actually live out their entire lives with a great sense of purpose. Everything they do serves a greater purpose, which is how we're supposed to live. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. If you read that in the ancient Greek, the word walk, peripiteo, refers to how a person actually lives out their life. Paul was saying we're created for a purpose, and we should live our entire lives according to that purpose. Everything we do. It's not just about doing good deeds once in a while and then hoping that at the end of our lives on this earth, the good deeds outweigh the bad. I, not too long ago, made a new friend, an older gentleman. I was talking to him recently about faith and about God and life and eternity. And he said to me, hey, brother, I'm, I'm just trying to, to check off more boxes in the column over here, the good stuff, to, to outweigh the boxes I've already checked so far in my life on the bad side. Of all the bad things I've done, I'm trying to make up for it now. I said, hey man, I understand what you're saying, but if that's your plan, you're in big trouble. There are no amount of boxes you're ever gonna check in this life that are gonna get you into heaven. We are not earning points on a scorecard in heaven that will one day be used to determine whether or not we get in. That's not how it works. Jesus Christ lived his life the ultimate purpose to save us once and for all. So there's no such thing as earning our way into heaven, which means the way you live your life is not a function of earning points with God. It's a function of honoring God by living the life he created you to live. And yet that also means choosing to believe you actually are who God made you to be, not who other people tell you you are or who you've come to believe you are based on your past or circumstances you're dealing with or anything else. No, you have to believe who God says that you are. 
And that's what Rahab was choosing to do here. But, but why? Right? I mean, what changed for this pagan prostitute whose culture worshipped many deities? Why now decide to live a purposeful life dedicated to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews? Well, she explains it in the passage we just read by way of a remarkable, uh, by the way, a remarkable understanding of who God is and what he had done of his word. Her explanation, by the way, is one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in biblical narrative. It's, and it's full, chock full of the language and theology of the Pentateuch, the Hebrew Bible, and particularly the book of Deuteronomy. For an Amorite woman, a prostitute no less, she had an impressive grasp on Hebrew scripture and through those scriptures and the testimony of others concerning God's work on behalf of the Jews, right? She said, we heard about what happened at the Red Sea. We heard about what you did to those, those other kings. She's heard the testimony of God's word working on behalf of the Jews. Rahab had come to faith in the one true God, believing not only in him, but also believing in who he created her to be as well. It's clear in verse 11 when she confesses the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She believed in God and all that he had to say about his creation. You see, Rahab wasn't merely trying to do a good deed for these men. No, by faith in God, she understood that she'd been chosen for something greater and therefore by her newfound faith, she made a decision to live the rest of her life, no matter how long it lasted, serving the purpose that she was created for, which, as we'll see, was much bigger than just her life. Right? If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have been chosen by God for a purpose. But the only way you can live your life according to that purpose is by believing that you are who He created you to be. Too many Christians don't believe in the man or woman that God created them to be. They look in the mirror. And all they see is failure, rejection, past mistakes, unworthiness, insecurity, fear. You know, that's what living for yourself gets you. Just ask Rahab, a prostitute running multiple businesses out of her own home, trying to build a life for herself and her family, and it had gotten her nowhere. She was the scourge of the town. But when she encounters the word of God, the word that described her life, as something altogether different than the lies she'd been believing and been told all these years. And then when she heard the stories about God's people and all that he'd done for them and through them, her heart was stirred and her faith came alive. That's why I believe she was cool as a cucumber, even under the most intensely stressful situation when the king's men come looking for the Jews that she's harboring in her home because Rahab had already come to faith in God. And when those Hebrew spies came knocking on her door, she knew the true purpose of her life was knocking on that door. She knew that God had created her life for something more than the one she tried to fashion for herself. And I believe when she looked in the mirror that evening for the very first time in her life, instead of seeing failure and rejection and past mistakes and unworthiness and insecurity and fear. I honestly believe that when she looked in the mirror that night for the very first time in her life, she saw something beautiful, something strong and courageous, something with a purpose that was far bigger than herself. I'm telling you, this is the watershed moment that every single one of us needs to have to understand that God created you for a purpose far greater than whatever existence you can scratch out for yourself in this lifetime. When he created you, he created something beautiful. 
When he created you, he created something with the potential to change the world. When he created you, he created a purpose for you that is so full of risk and reward, sacrifice and fulfillment, battles and victories, that it's the only life worth living. But look, the only way you'll ever live with that kind of purpose is by first believing that you are who he says you are. You are chosen by God for a purpose. And the way you come to believe that is the same way Rahab came to believe it, by his word, the testimony of others, and the faith that follows it. It's faith in what he has said and what he's done that will cause you to see yourself in an entirely new light. And then everything changes when you begin to live with purpose, which is what we're witnessing here with Rahab as the story unfolds. Let's read verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out, to the door, out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So the spies survived the search from the king's men only because of Rahab. And then they gained valuable information about the Amorites only because of Rahab. And now with whatever escape plan they had being cut off as they're basically now trapped in Rahab's house, Rahab offers a way out of the city and a plan for them to be able to return to their own people unharmed. So again, Rahab tells the spies what they must do next in order to survive. And so even though the spies' escape plan to sneak out undetected was a miserable failure, leaving them otherwise trapped in this enemy city, God chose Rahab to provide salvation for his people. She told them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. Okay, so to return back to Joshua uh, from this city, from Jericho, uh, one would have to travel east from Jericho to the fords at the river. That was the only place on the Jordan anywhere near Jericho where the water was shallow enough to cross. Of course, the king's men knew that, so they went there to wait at the fords in ambush of the Israelite spies, and Rahab knew that as well because she sent them on a fool's errand in order to protect the Hebrew spies. And so when it comes time for the spies to leave, she tells them to go west, the opposite direction, into the Jordan Valley, which is where the hills were, which also happened to be filled with caves and small caverns where they could hide for three days until their pursuers would be convinced they'd already crossed the river ahead of them, then give up the search and head back to Jericho. So once again, Rahab acts with great purpose, ultimately saving the spies 
from capture, and yet before they leave, she strikes an agreement with them that when the Israelites attack the city, that they spare Rahab and her family. And of course, the spies agree, telling her, this, uh, tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, meaning one of the cords that had been dyed red for making linen in order that the Israelites could determine which house she was in. Um, okay, in biblical times, it was common for cities to be fortified by what is called casement walls or a double wide wall, which were double walls with space in between. And then they would build cross connecting walls between the two main walls to add strength. And also it would create, of course, chambers all throughout the walls. So some of the chambers were used for storage, but many of them were used as dwellings with windows on the outside of the walls. So you can imagine if you're an Israelite in an army marching up to this massive city to attack and looking at the endless number of windows that all look the same in the outer stone wall that has been bleached out by the sun. Right? Without something signifying Rahab's particular window, the soldiers would have no idea which house she lived in. So she ties this cord in the window, and not just any cord, but a scarlet cord. Uh, Jewish rabbinical tradition correlates the scarlet cord with the blood that was placed on the doorposts and lintels to protect the Israelites from the death angel on the evening of the first Passover in Exodus 12:7. While the early church fathers like Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, they all wrote that the scarlet cord was also a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. So some early imagery here in this story as Rahab brings salvation to these spies. Imagery that both looks back to the central work of salvation in the Old Testament, the deliverance of the Jews out of Egypt, and also looks forward to the central work of salvation in the New Testament, the work of Christ on the cross. And just as God chose an unexpected candidate for his first act of salvation for his people, Moses, a stuttering shepherd, just as he chose an unexpected candidate for his ultimate act of salvation for his people, his own son, Jesus Christ, here he chooses Rahab. An unexpected candidate, a pagan prostitute to bring salvation to his people. Why? Because that's how God works. He chooses the broken. He chooses the rejected. He chooses the lost. He chooses the hurting. He chooses the lowly. He chooses the unqualified to carry out his greatest works. And in doing so, he gives us a purpose far greater than anything we could ever achieve on our own. Okay, the spies thought they were going to Jericho undercover to gain information and then slip out unnoticed. Instead, they failed every single objective. Their entire mission was a wretched failure on all accounts were it not for Rahab. Okay, this is what we really need right here to understand about this story. Why would God have send, uh, Joshua send spies to Jericho to fail on every single objective. I mean, at the end of the day, what was the point of the spies? Everything they tried was a failure. So what was the point? They, they nearly ruined the entire mission. What was the point of sending the spies at all? The point was Rahab. She was the reason for all of it, because long before any of this had happened, God chose Rahab, a pagan prostitute, rejected by her culture, 
the scourge of society, but God chose her for a purpose to not only bring protection and revelation and salvation to these Israelites, but do you know one of the spies was Salmon, the leader of the tribe of Judah, the same man who later marries Rahab, and together they have a son named Boaz, who marries Ruth, who has Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. And so because Rahab recognized her true purpose in this life and did what she did for these spies, her purpose was fulfilled. By the way, everything that she did for them, they in turn did for her. Later in the story, when the city was attacked, they brought protection to her and her family. She was integrated into God's people, bringing further revelation of the truth about who God was and who she was. And by including her in their family, they brought salvation to her and her entire household, out of which came the Christ. She wasn't a Jew. You see, God's plan from long before the New Testament, (laughs) he planned for you and I to be a part of his family. You want to talk about living with purpose. Rahab is the poster child for someone who lived with purpose, even though she, had, she was the most unlikely candidate, completely un, unqualified by cultural and religious standards, broken by years of wanton sin, utterly rejected and written off by everyone around her, an outcast in her community, haunted by her past, with no prospects for the future, and yet not one ounce of any of that made one bit of difference when the time came. Why? Because no matter what culture or religion or the community or your past says about you, if God has chosen you, then you have a purpose that is greater than anything you've done in the past, greater than anything anyone ever says to you about you, greater than any lack of qualification greater than any obstacle standing in your way. That's what it means to be chosen by God. You now belong to him and everyone who belongs to him has a purpose to fulfill that is bigger than you and beyond your wildest dreams. So why sell yourself short by living your life to try and attain some sort of status when when you can live a life of purpose? God chose Rahab, of all people, for a life beyond anything she could have ever possibly imagined. What what has he chosen you for? Have you ever asked him? Are you just so busy trying to make it from one day to the next that you never take the time to ask and then listen to what he has to say? Rahab's life was completely insane. And yet, somewhere in the midst of all the insanity, she came to understand who God was and who she was. And look, we all need to have that same watershed moment in our lives because you cannot become all that God created you to be until you accept the person he created you to be. And so I'm just asking, what's keeping you from your purpose? Is it your past? Is it your hurt? Is it your failures? Is it something... Someone else has said to you or done to you, do you feel completely unqualified? Because that's Rahab all the way. Yet once she realized her purpose, not one of those things mattered anymore. So why don't you go ahead and just clean the slate, just push all those excuses off the table right now and accept the fact that you have been chosen by God for a greater purpose than any of those things. And then begin living that life of purpose. Listen, it isn't always going to be easy. 
but it's what you were born to do. The Apostle Paul said he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you get that? You understand what that means? It means no matter what seems to be standing in your way today, no matter how big or insurmountable it may be, God says, I chose you for this before I created this good earth. I chose you to live a life of great purpose, and there's only one thing that can ever keep you from living it. It's you. So let go of everything else and embrace your purpose. Embrace who you really are in Christ because that is what you've been chosen for. Let's pray.